really fun. Good evening. Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. Thank you for coming. Awesome. <laughs> exactly. That's a, did you want to sing? <laughs> we are having a special gathering this evening about six years ago. A kind of random collection of people here in town got together and decided to start this speaker series with its own take involving our local breweries. And um, one of those people in the group was Deanne, standing here to my right who owns this establishment and runs it with complete and total style. And we are deeply grateful for your hospitality, your, your delicious food, and, um, and the home that you have provided for Golden Beer Talk. So we are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you want to make any comments? Thank you all. I know many of you have been coming here for the last six years or almost six years, and it's always a really special time for me to welcome you into my second home, and I appreciated seeing you over the years, and um, I only wish the best for Golden Beer Talks moving on, and maybe I'll stop over there and just have beer with you instead of serving you here. Nice. Deanne is going to open her card, and um, it's a it's a passage for us. So we've, you know, had we've had enough nights where we've been violating the fire code with the size of our crowd that we're <laughs> moving across the street to the Buffalo Rose. But this will always be yeah. our home. I cried for about a week. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. That's so nice. Yeah. Thank you all. And thank you also for uh, the drinks and snacks tonight. You're welcome. There's nothing that can't be fixed by a little Chex Mix. Yeah. <laughs> and there's plenty more. So. There's plenty more. Yeah, Keep in. drinking and eating. Yeah. Um, I would also like to ask for the following people to stand up for some love. That's you, Brandon. That's you, Luna. That's you, Barb. That's you, Frank. That's you, Bart. Stand up. Stand up. Karen. Don. Jim. So this is, this is the team of people that bring you Golden Beer Talks every month and um, in different capacities. Everybody on this side of the bar is on the organizing team and everybody on that side of the bar is pretty awesome. Uh, if it's any consolation at all, we're taking Brandon with us because he just happens to work at both establishments. <laughs> Nobody's going to go thirsty. <laughs> we also are grateful for goldentoday.com for always promoting our events and keeping an eye on everything important going on in Golden. If you aren't signed up on their listserv, you really should be at goldentoday.com. You can, you can get an amazing amount of useful, concisely presented information to make you a better citizen of Golden. So we are grateful for that as well. So, and, our, and our goldentoday.com author, Barb Borden, is in the house. <laughs> I'm going to bring up Don Sweetkind. He's going to introduce our speaker for this evening. Come on up, Don. Thanks, Whitney, and welcome, everyone. 
So, um, everybody hang on to your beers or your wine, because I'm going to hit you with a big word. Charismatic megafauna. You like that one? Charismatic megafauna. What the heck does that mean? Megafauna. Well, that's large animal. I can do that. What's charismatic? <laughs> at, the risk, at the risk of offending, I might quibble with the mega part of that. All right. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to sharks. So these are the iconic species, right? These are the species that tug at our hearts and our imaginations. These are the species that are a natural entry point uh, to engage us in conversations about conservation and about the environment. I would submit that you care more about giant pandas than you do about the devil's hole pupfish, even though the pupfish wins the award as the species with the physically smallest biological range of any species on the planet. I would submit you care more about bald eagles than some moth you've never heard about in the Amazon jungle. So charismatic megafaunas. Which brings us to sharks. No one would watch a TV show called Pupfish Week <laughs> or Moth Week. But Shark Week? Yeah. I'd watch Shark Week. So here to talk about the world of sharks tonight, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Mickey. Dr. Mickey McComb-Cobsey is one of the world's top shark experts, and she's the executive director of Ocean First Institute, which is a Colorado-based nonprofit that merges science and education to promote, protect, and preserve marine environments. Dr. Mickey's research focus is sharks, and she speaks, teaches, and she's conducted research on sharks worldwide. She's been featured in National Geographic, on BBC, of course, on Discovery Channel's Shark Week, and she's, uh, you can watch her on several YouTube videos as I did this morning as I was drinking my coffee. So she and the Ocean First Institute stri strives to bridge the gap between research, scientific research, and education through public engagement. Um, and she and, and the Institute help us in discovering the ocean through a conservation focus and understanding the importance of the ocean in our daily lives. So tonight, Dr. Mickey will share the story of sharks and their fascinating adaptations through time, as well as aspects of her ongoing conservation and research issues, uh, efforts through the Ocean First Institute. So please welcome tonight Dr. Mickey. It's really exciting to be here on your last night. Uh, I can feel the love in the room, so this is a really great venue, and I'm sure uh, everyone is really uh, sad to, to be moving, but it seems like a natural thing when you grow like you are, so it's wonderful. Um, so I'm Dr. Mickey, and I'm so excited to be here tonight to talk about my favorite thing in the whole wide world, and that is sharks. And uh, so I will be sharing um, a little bit about my, should I be talking to the microphone? Sorry. So I'm going to be um, talking a little bit about, uh, first, how I got interested in sharks in the first place. 
Um, and then I want to take you on a little bit of a journey to share some of the shark species that you may know, some that you might not know, and just share that uh, experience with you. They're fascinating animals. And then I'll talk a little bit about my research that I'm doing and why I feel conservation for these species is so critically important. And a big part of that is doing outreach to get people to understand what's happening. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get started and uh, share with you how I got interested in sharks in the first place. I uh, grew up here in Colorado, just like many of you. I'm a Colorado native. Um, and I spent my childhood enjoying um, being in the mountains, um, spent a lot of time hiking with my family. But things changed for me in a weird way when I was seven years old and I saw the movie Jaws. And I was so terrified after leaving that movie. Um, so how many of you have seen it? Of course, everyone's probably seen Jaws. Third, seven, Oh, my goodness. But I literally thought sharks were under my bed. I thought they were under the kitchen table. Um, I was terrified. I had a big shark problem. And the only way that I knew to get over my fear was to read about sharks. And the more I read about them, the more I was absolutely fascinated by their story and their um, diversity. And so they captivated me um, from that fear to true fascination. Uh, really sharing the truth about sharks and trying to help people understand more about them and their uh, amazing uh, story. So, as I got a little bit older, um, I ended up moving down to Florida Uh, becoming a scuba instructor. So that was my dream job. Um, I moved down to the Florida Keys and spent my days underwater swimming with sharks and taking other people with me um, and spending, you know, good amount of time underwater observing them, understanding their behaviors, just really getting to understand how they work. And it was an extraordinary time for me. Um, how many of you are scuba divers? Surprisingly, there's a lot of scuba divers in Colorado, which is <laughs> pretty amazing. He will be a scuba diver one day. I'm sure he will be. I just certified my son, who's 10 years old, so it's, 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 uh, it's good to start early. But anyway, it was an amazing time for me and opened up some doors for me um, to become a researcher. And so at the age of 28, I went back to college, um, got my uh, Ph.D., followed my dreams, and ended up uh, asking questions about sharks, things like their sensory biology, how do they find their way underwater, how do they find each other, how, do they, how well do they see, why do we have weird sharks like hammerheads in the ocean, um, things like that. So an incredible journey to go from a scared kid in Colorado to being able to go all over the world and uh, work with other researchers to ask questions about sharks, which are still fairly elusive um, for us. Context. Um, when we talk about sharks, it's really critically important to understand the expanse of time, and that's a really hard concept. Our universe is thought to be, by scientists, over 14 billion years old, and our planet, ocean, if you look at it from space, um, is, is over 4.6 billion years old. And because we have water on uh, our planet, we have life. And life got interesting around 400 uh, million years ago. That was when we saw the rise of the first jawed vertebrates, um, and it sort of kicked off an arms race, um, if you will, between um, tooth and claw. And so what you see behind me, these bizarre-looking prehistoric sharks, this one um, is like the buzzsaw killer. It looks like it has a buzzsaw in its mouth, 
and sharks' teeth are modified scales. That's how they evolved. And so what you see here is heliocoprion. It has a, basically a whirl um, saw in its mouth, and it used that to cut through pretty much whatever it could. Um, back in the day. And then this other shark is called Cladiosalache. This is a male. Only the males had this weird ironing board um, dorsal fin with bristles on it. Could have had something to do with mating. We don't know. Um, we're not exactly sure. But put this in context. 400 million years before the time of animals we think of as ancient creatures, the dinosaurs. Um, we used to have T-Rex in Denver, which is incredible. Uh, but dinosaurs arose around 200 million years ago, and they blinked out around 65 million years ago due to a meteor impact. And so um, the, the meteor impact changed conditions on Earth so much so that we no longer uh, have dinosaurs. But who was already here swimming in the ocean? It was the sharks. So the story of sharks really is a story of survival. They have lived through five mass extinction events, and we are now entering, and we are in, the sixth mass extinction event. Does anyone know what it's called? Has anyone heard? Donald Trump. <laughs> so it's actually the Anthropocene. Does anyone know what anthro means? Man, it's, it's a human-induced um, you know, mass extinction event. So we are living that, and so we can only hope that many species, including... Um, sharks are closely related to animals called skates and rays, and collectively they're called the elasmobranchs, and they have a shared characteristic, that is they have a skeleton on the inside, just like you and I do, but that skeleton is made of cartilage, that's the stuff at the end of your nose and in your ears, so they are collectively called the cartilaginous fishes, um, and that's what binds this group together. I should have done that. Um, but because they have been on the planet so long, they have radiated into nearly every aquatic habitat on the planet. So from the brightly lit coral reefs um, to the muddy waters of the Amazon, I've got to study these freshwater stingrays in the Amazon. They're absolutely gorgeous. They have polka dots on them. They're absolutely beautiful. And then we have sharks like this that live under ice in the polar regions. This is the Greenland shark. New research tells us this shark may live upwards of 400 years. This could be the longest lived vertebrate on our planet, and that's just brand new research that's come out. Um, so that's the Greenland shark. And then we have a shark like this, frilled shark, that lives its entire life in the deep dark benthos where no sunlight penetrates. So imagine living a near lifetime um, with no sunlight. And it has adaptations to allow it to live and thrive in this deep uh, environment. So when we study sharks, it's important to understand there are over 500 different species swimming in our ocean today. And they all have different body shapes. They have different tooth morphologies or different tooth shapes. Um, they have different reproductive modes. Um, some of them have to continually swim to survive. Others can lay on the seafloor all day long and be just fine. Um, so they really are an amazing story of diversity. And that's why they're so fascinating to study. So now I'm going to take you on a journey. And we're going we're gonna to talk about some species you probably know and some that you might not know. But I just want you to get an appreciation for how varied this, this amazing group of fish is. So I'm going to start with the biggest. So this is the biggest shark. It's called the whale shark. It's not a whale. It's a shark. It's a, it's a, it's a fish. And these fish can grow upwards of almost 50 feet, as big as a school bus. 
and you can see it's beautiful. It's got polka dot markings. Um, they stay near the surface of the water because they are filter feeders. And you can see coming into the screen me and my son. Um, and you might be thinking, why would you want to swim with the biggest shark in the ocean? Because they're totally harmless. Um, they are eating tiny zooplankton um, in his mouth as he opens his mouth. Um, he's filtering out tiny plants and animals called plankton. So imagine the biggest bodies in the ocean are grown and fueled by nearly microscopic organisms. It's truly incredible. Um, they're amazing, and they're beautiful animals. And if you ever have the chance to find a place to, to snorkel with them, you should. They're incredible. So to go from the biggest to the smallest, this is the dwarf lantern shark. This is as big as it gets. Um, it's a deep sea shark, and it can fit into the palm of your hand. And did you know that there literally are sharks that can glow in the dark? So this is the velvet belly lantern shark. It uses chemicals inside its body to create light called bioluminescence, and its belly glows green to match the downwelling light of the sun to help the shark become invisible. It's like a Harry Potter invisibility cloak. It's really cool. And then this is an, um, an extraordinary shark. It's a very sharky shark. This is the mako. And the mako shark is the cheetah of the ocean. Um, they don't make them any faster. These guys have been clocked in bursts up to 70 miles an hour. So imagine um, going onto the highway and looking out your window as you're speeding and seeing a mako. Um, so they are fast swimmers, and they have special adaptations in their eyes. So look at this shark. This is a mako chasing a boat that has bait hanging off the back, and it has a camera. And sharks don't have hands, so as they're swimming through the water, they've got to use their mouth to get everything. And he's coming in very quickly, chasing a fast-moving boat with fast-moving dangling bait. And he's able to go in there and grab it with his mouth with no problem. So imagine the pressure on his eyes to be able to resolve that fast-moving landscape. And so he superheats his eyes. It's a crazy adaptation, but his eyes are above the ambient ocean temperature by sometimes 10 to 20 degrees. And what does that mean? It just means his eyes work as effectively and fast as possible, which again is a visual advantage for this shark. Okay, so talking about eyes, this is the big eye thresher shark. So it has a big eye, as you can see the action in this shark is in the tail. It has what we call a heterocercal tail. It just means one lobe of the tail is larger than the other, and it uses the tail as a weapon to stun fish. It's incredible. So it, it slaps and smacks schools of fish with its tail, and this is called tail smacking, and it stuns the fish, and so then the shark can spin around and grab one, two, three fish at a time. So it's an adaptation to maximize the thresher shark's feeding ability, which is really incredible. So it's like the Indiana Jones of the shark world. It's pretty cool. And what's also neat is if you go to California, you'll often see them jump out of the water, and you know it's a thresher because of that long tail. What's that? Yeah, yeah, we, we definitely will, and that's a 
That's a super great question, and I will go into it. So this is another really great friend, and I have some things in the back that I can share with you during Q&A about the tiger shark. These are the tigers of the sea. We have tigers in the jungle. These are the tigers of the sea. This is the tiger shark. They are voracious predators. They are absolutely gorgeous, and they have a blunt nose. He gets a little snappy here, but you can see those beautiful markings all the way down his body. They're tropical sharks, and they're not discriminate feeders. They eat license plates, cameras, fur coats, um, plastic, you name it. We find all kinds of weird things in the bellies of the tiger shark. They're interesting. So this is so unbelievable. I worked in South Africa on the pajama shark there's a pajama shark. It's true. So the pajama shark is swimming right across the reef. This is a mama shark. So Mother's Day, yes, of course. So this is a mama shark, and she's about to lay an egg. So some sharks lay eggs, and some sharks give birth to live young. She is moving, maneuvering around, and she's trying to find a good spot to lay her eggs because she's a good mama. And what you can see here is she's got her eggs coming out. The eggs are called mermaid's purses, and they're about this big. And she's swirling her egg that has little tendrils around them onto vegetation so that they're safe they're going to stay put, and in about five to six months, those little baby sharks will come out of the eggs and hatch. And so she's a great mom, taking some time to make sure that her offspring have a great chance to survive. So I'm sure some of you have heard of the bull shark before. So I've been diving with bull sharks quite a bit um, in Costa Rica. Bull sharks are kind of football-like sharks. They're big. <clears throat> they're stout. Um, and they have a unique adaptation. They are what we call a urihaline species, and what that means is they can go from fresh water to brackish water to salt water and all the way back and forth. And so we see them in rivers and streams, and that makes them especially dangerous. They're the number three most dangerous shark in the ocean. Um, and what's interesting is many times the females will have their pups, their babies, in fresh water because there's not that many big predators in those areas. So another adaptive strategy to help these sharks. And then did you know that we actually have sharks that can walk on land? So we have land sharks for real. This is the epaulette shark. It lives in northern Australia, and it does an action we call punting with its pectoral fins. It moves across the reef during low tide, and then it goes into small tide pools where fish are trapped, and it's like fish in a barrel. So they're able to get those fish and do what they want to do and then go back out after um, the tide comes back up. So another adaptive feeding strategy. Okay, this is the ugliest shark, <laughs> hands down. Um, this is the goblin shark. This is a real shark. It's pretty incredible. It's got this paddle-like nose, this snout, um, that we think is used to help it hunt. It's a deep sea shark, so it's found in the deep ocean. Um, and it's got these snaggly teeth. You can see from the front, it's not any prettier, I'm afraid to say. But it's got needle-like teeth and this very projected paddle-like snout. But the weirdness doesn't end with the snout and the teeth of the goblin shark. It's got another trick up its sleeve, and it's amazing. So take a look at this. This is a goblin shark as it actually hits a diver's arm underwater. Watch the jaws. It's amazing. <laughs> So these jaws can protrude out of the head in order to help it catch its prey. 
because goblin sharks may encounter prey in the deep ocean maybe once or twice a week, maybe less, so they have to maximize their chance to be able to grab that food. And so that's how they do it. Their jaws come out. So it's almost like weirder than a movie, you know? You don't have to look too far in nature to find strange things. And Yeah, exactly. And to talk about strange things, um, so you have this really long head this way in the goblin shark, and then you have this really stretched head in the hammerheads. So hammerheads are my favorite shark. They are amazing. So you might not know that hammerheads are the most recently evolved sharks in the ocean, only been around for about 10 million years. But what you might not also know is there's more than one hammerhead so there's actually over 10, and we keep discovering more. But they have this, this expansion of their heads in the different species. So they go from kind of normal sharks to absolutely bizarre in a separate genus called the winghead shark. <clears throat> it's completely freaky. It looks like a swimming boomerang. Um, and I was able to go to um, its range in Indonesia to try to study this winghead shark um, as part of my PhD, and uh, I could never catch them. They're very elusive, so I had to work with museum specimens, which was really a bummer, but um, we were able to um, look at them, do some work on their heads, trying to understand what's going on. And so just to, to tell you a little bit about hammerheads, um, as funny as it sounds in the, in the literature, there have been arguments about why the hammerheads have this weird head. Like, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it a no thing? Does it do nothing? Um, so for my PhD, I studied hammerhead heads. And what is the purpose of a hammerhead head? Is there a purpose to it? Is there anything to it? And um, one of the things that I got to study, um, amongst many, was their visual system. So if you're a hammerhead and your eyes are pointing straight out, can you even see straight ahead where you're going? What the heck is going on with that? So I laid some bets, and I was like, there's no way they can see straight ahead. So for my PhD, I got to study the very fundamental aspect of vision, which is what you see around your head. And so when it came to hammerheads, our research showed us they do have binocular overlaps in front of their heads. And in fact, their overlaps are bigger than normal sharks, which was a total surprise to us. And that just translates into depth perception. So they can see where things are, and they can judge distances. Um, so what's surprising um, is that shark eyes are very complex. They rival our eyes in complexity. They have mobile pupils. They can dilate and constrict their eyes which is a sign of a complicated eye. And so some of the questions I got to ask um, were things like, do they see in color? Can they resolve color um, as they're swimming through the ocean? Would that be something that would help them? Um, and then again, that question about speed. So look at the mako. It's a fast-moving predator. Do its eyes work fast in comparison to a shark that's laying on the seafloor all day, kind of going, Duh. <laughs> do you see anything moving by? Are their eyes working faster? Um, so really kind of interesting questions. So how do you test a shark's vision? They can't talk, unfortunately. That would make it so easy. Um, you have to go out into the field and catch them. So this is a picture of me baiting um, So we would go out and catch our sharks, and then we would bring them back to the lab where we would acclimate them. So these are little baby hammerhead sharks, um, which we love, um, out in Hawaii. And so we would acclimate and make sure they were healthy and okay 
would run them through our experimental trials, and then after we would get all of the data and the information we needed, we would put them back into our tanks, make sure they were okay, make sure they were feeding okay, and then put them back into the wild where they belong. So we were able to get secrets from them, but yet let them go, which was a really important and so the knowledge that we gained from these studies helped us understand more about the physiology of the animals, as well as learning more about their conservation and things that we need to know in order to help these animals. Because the truth is, um, sharks are really important animals. So just like we have wolves in Yellowstone that maintain ecosystem balance, sharks are the wolves of the sea. They maintain ecosystem balance, and they are a very, very vital part of a healthy ecosystem. Right now, sharks are in trouble. So we are taking sharks out of the ocean faster than they can replace themselves. And we're doing it mainly for shark fin soup. So how many of you guys have heard of shark fin soup before? A couple. Most of you, actually. That's great. So shark fin soup is a, is, is a really destructive practice um, used where they take the fins off animals and they kick the animals alive off the, the boat and they just use the very small part of the animal. They don't even use the rest of it. So it's a very wasteful and cruel practice. But sharks grow slowly. They reproduce um, slowly. Um, and climate change, surprisingly, is having a big impact on sharks because their prey, um, because of changes in chemistry and temperature, are moving poleward. And so we're seeing sharks' migration patterns change. We're seeing their pupping ground areas change. So we're starting to really take note of some pretty drastic and quick changes in behaviors and movement patterns in sharks. And so um, one of the things that I uh, am very passionate about is uh, some of the research that I've been doing for a long time um, down in Costa Rica. And so I have two research sites. One is in um, right here in um, Golfo Dulce, and then I do another project up in the northwest corner on the tropical Pacific. And the reason I work in that area is because in the tropical uh, Pacific, uh, hammerhead sharks that I love so much have declined by 90% in the last 15 years. And so now they are an endangered species, which is kind of unbelievable to think that that's happened just in my uh, span of working on them. And so down in uh, Golfo Dulce, I work on shark pups in an area um, that is uh, believed to be a shark nursery area. Project started out with colleagues of mine at Mission Tiburon who realized that the fishermen in this nursery area were using these endangered scalloped hammerhead babies as bait. And they didn't know. They didn't know any different. And so we've been working on education campaigns and tagging and tracking these animals to see where they go. And what we have found is pretty amazing. That, that is definitely a nursery area, and we've been working with fishermen and the government to try to protect these animals. In 2018, the Costa Rican president declared Golfo Dulce as the world's first hammerhead shark sanctuary, which was amazing. We were so excited about that. And um, so we've continued to do tagging and tracking and working with local fishermen to really protect these animals. Um, so I'm going to shift gears quickly and just do one last little push about great white sharks, which I've worked with, which I love so much. This is amazing. This is deep blue. She's probably the largest great white shark that's ever been filmed. This was in Guadalupe Island off the Baja coast of Mexico. Um, Isla Guadalupe is where, where she is. Um, she was recently spotted off the island of Hawaii, which was amazing. 
um, just this past summer. Um, but anyway, one of the questions about these animals is how big are they? Their maximum length is thought to be 22 feet, but we don't know. It's not easy to haul these animals out of the water to measure them, and it's not healthy for the animals. And so we wanted to come up with a non-invasive way to measure these animals. And so um, we came up with a technique called laser photogrammetry. And um, it's really quite simple. You have two, la and I've got my device back here. I'll show you during Q&A. But we have two lasers. They're lasers um, that are set a known distance apart with a camera in the middle. And we shine the laser lights onto the side of the shark. And what happens is you can then figure out, it's like beaming a ruler onto the side of the animal. I had students um, in Longmont help me design this and integrate it and prototype it. And then I was able to use it when I was in Guadalupe in the cage. That's me shining the laser light onto the side of the shark. So it was really exciting um, to be able to do it. And so you can see here, this is the device with the camera in the middle. And I'm underwater breathing on a hookah, um, getting kind of excited because the sharks are swimming around and we're ready to go. And um, as the shark swims by, there's the shark. You can um, just easily shine those laser lights on them as they go by. And the goal is to have the shark as perpendicular as possible so that you don't have parallax error or any kind of distortion from having the shark at a weird angle. And so as the sharks swim by, you can just shine the lights on them. And you can do this with any animal. You can do it with sea turtles or any kind of fish. It doesn't have to be just sharks. So it's a really cool, non-invasive, cheap technique to be able to really give you information. And this is a beautiful girl named Scarbird. She's got a big scar on her head. But she's pregnant, and we were able to measure her um, during that trip. And when a female is pregnant, she'll have five pups inside, and they're about five feet long. So you can imagine, she may be long, but she's super wide. She's, she's very girthy. She's a big girl. Yeah, I, I think so. I think definitely, because she's huge. Um, and one of the other things that I got to do, which is really exciting, is during that trip, I was able to go into the cage with a full face mask and beam through satellites into classrooms to talk to kids. So this is a, just a little take of that video, which is really fun. <laughs> and I have my little shark doll, and I'm like explaining the fins and things. And then the shark would swim by, and they're like, Mickey, put your hands in the cage. What are you doing? <laughs> it was pretty cool. So that was another exciting thing to do the research, but to also get it out there and to get people to understand why it's important. And one of the last things that I'd love to share with you is just that we engage students on expeditions with us. We believe in science, and we believe in connecting kids to nature. It's so important. So we take kids into the field with us, and we have them collect data with us. This is a young uh, middle school girl who's in the Bahamas with me, and she's going out with our laser device. That's a Caribbean reef shark, totally harmless. And she's going after that shark to measure it, and she does it successfully. She's got her buoyancy. I taught her how to dive. She's like totally dialed in, ready to go. And you know what an amazing experience to be in middle school and going down and swimming with sharks and <laughs> collecting data. And I'm so excited. And uh, yeah, so so that's a, a little bit of, of what we do. And I know that I've talked a lot, so I, I think it's time for a break. All right. All right. Thank you. We'll take about a 10-minute break, so you can refuel on some beverages if you wish, and if you'd like to visit with Mickey a little bit in the back, and then we'll come back up here for Q&A at the mic, too, and I'll let you know when. So enjoy. 
Okay, cool. All right. We're going to start Q&A. We'll just have you pick folks to sure. ask questions. If you don't mind repeating the questions so that we have it on the recording. Great. Thank you. Sure. All right, everybody, we're back. Does anybody have any questions? Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so the, the question is, do you have a kid, and uh, is he interested in what you do? And so I have a 10-year-old son. His name is Nick, and he, um, I just took him to Florida over spring break, and I certified him as a junior open water diver. And um, during our dive, um, we, we saw these hammerhead sculptures um, on the dive, and he was doing the um, hammerhead shark signal to me underwater and going, Woo flashing some Fortnite game signals to me and thinking he was so cool. So I think he's, and, and my husband is also a wildlife biologist, so he's kind of doomed to hopefully become a, a true biologist and nature lover, and, uh, and I, I'm hopeful. But if he becomes a banker or something like that, it, it would be okay, but we're hopeful that he's going to enjoy um, being outside. What's that? Yes, a musician, of course. And he does. He likes the saxophone and the electric guitar. So who knows? Yes. So that is an excellent question. His question is, why do hammerheads have the cephalofoil? So the scientific term that he's using, cephalofoil, is the name of their head. And um, that was what I studied for my whole PhD. And the, the answer is kind of, it's a difficult answer. Why? Because there are so many different species, as you saw, some with uh, kind of almost normal head shapes and then some with extreme. Um, so we think that some, some of the hammerheads use their heads to pin down prey. They eat stingrays. They love stingrays. And so we've seen them uh, pinning down stingrays using their heads that way. We also know that when they swim through the water, that head is like a canard aircraft craft wing, so it's hydrodynamic. So it cuts through the water easier um, than a normal kind of blocky shark head, the torpedo-shaped head. Um, so that's another advantage. It gives them lift. They're highly maneuverable. Um, and one of the other things then that was a real uh, big part of my study was the sensory structure. So as that head is stretched out, you have eyes three feet apart, you have nares or their nostrils three feet apart. They have stereo smell. It's crazy. So, um, and they have nostrils and nares that are um, expanded across their entire head, filled with uh, chemical receptors called the olfactory rosette. So they have an enhanced um, ability to chemically bind odors in the water. And when we would go fishing, anecdotally, the hammerheads were one of the first on the scene when we would chum the water. So we think they maybe have enhanced um, smell, enhanced vision because of that binocularity. And it's all because of the positioning of the eyes on the ends of the hammer on the cephalofoil. So those eyes are canted slightly forward, giving them 50-degree binocular overlaps in contrast to regular sharks, which are around 10 degrees. So it's a big difference. 
Um, and they also lastly have an electrosensory system, so all sharks can detect weak electric fields underwater. And I tested whether or not they have visual blind spots in front of their heads, um, as like when you put your finger right here, you can't really see it. Same hammerheads and other sharks have pretty big visual blind spots. That um, electrosensory system kind of compensates for that blind spot. It's a very close range sense, and we mapped it out, and it's kind of like right at 100% coverage, which is really remarkable. But it's not surprising, because they've been around for millions of years, and they're fine-tuned to be perfect predators. Great question. Yes. We think that sharks have an intelligence on par of a common domestic dog. And uh, what we see in hammerheads in particular, um, in scalloped hammerheads, is they school in the hundreds. And they, have, uh, they will seg segregate sexually. So males over here, females over here, never the two shall meet until mating time, which makes sense. Um, but when they're separate, there is a dominance hierarchy that we see in the schools. So there are dominant females, there are submissive females, and there is constant communication happening between the members in the school, which is just remarkable if you think about it, um, that these animals are smarter than we could have ever given them credit for as being stupid fish, but they're really not. They've got a complex social structure. We believe that they're using the Earth's magnetic lines um, to go on migratory routes that they've been using for thousands of years. So there's all kinds of things that we're still trying to understand about these amazing animals, and we can only hope that we can discover those things and have researchers like this young guy um, who can unlock the mysteries, because we still don't know so much. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so the question is, what are the areas of, you know, most critical research? And I would say that's a, it's an interesting question coming from, um, I've, I've been in the field for oh, 25 years, and I can say that scientific research plays a, a vital role in trying to understand the movements, um, the changes that I was mentioning with climate change and seeing their prey base moving to different areas that we've never seen before. Um, that's a really important thing. So tagging and tracking animals is a big part of it. I'm doing a survey of an area. Really, the biggest issue is there's, there, it's called data deficiency. We don't even know enough about many shark species to even be able to classify whether they're endangered, whether they're vulnerable, any of those classifications. We don't have enough information. So really we need more uh, people who care and who are going to go into research to try to really answer some of these questions. And then the last part of that puzzle, which has changed my life, is I feel it's important to talk to as many people as you can because academic research stays in academic silos for the most part. And I found that to be incredibly dissatisfactory. And that's what led me to this strange career path that I have, um, speaking in bars and other places. Um, <laughs> But it, 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 it's important, I think, to get the word out to as many people as possible because people care if they know, and if they don't know, they can't care. And really, that's kind of the mantra. So I feel the research is critical, but so equally important is the outreach to get people to understand you know, and, and be outraged by some of the things that are happening out there.
Yeah. So the question and comment was, you know, are scientists doing a disservice by kind of staying in that academic silo and really speaking to their own um, small group? And I would say absolutely. And I would say um, I'm kind of the oddball in my in my peer group because I don't find that to be satisfactory. Um, you know, I could have gone down that path, but it wasn't for me. I wanted to share um, a wider audience. I felt it was so critically important to get past um, the tower and to try to get people excited about science because science is just a way of looking at the world in a very pragmatic and systematic way and it gives us answers to questions that we can all believe in and uh, I think science should be you know spread and it, it should be sexy and cool and you know that's what we try to teach the kids is it's fun it's like being an investigator you're trying to figure out mysteries trying to look at fossils and figure out who used to live here and why and what happened to them and what's going to happen to us using those as predictive tools so uh, I think, yes, I think uh, many scientists are not good speakers and they don't feel comfortable going out on a limb and they don't like to get out of their comfort zone. And I think this is the time. We're in the sixth mass extinction. If you're not going to get uncomfortable now, when? 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 Hopefully not. But I know what you're saying. I, I, I hear you. But we've got to have hope. Hope has got to keep us going. <laughs> so we watch Sharknado in our house, I have to admit it, and we laugh. Um, it's, it's fun for us. And, you know, he watches Jaws and is like, I don't know why you were scared, Mom. What are you, what's your problem? You know, this is really seriously. So, um, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's advanced uh, from where I am. But we, we watch silly shows like Sharknado and all the mini shark cult movies. And we just laugh. Like Meg, we saw Meg when it came out in the movies. And everybody's like, really? You're really going to pay money and propagate this stuff? And I'm like, you know what? It's funny. It's, it's uh, humor. It's silly. You've got to take it with a grain of salt. Yes. Um, absolutely. So the question is, are there any shark species that use pack hunting techniques? And absolutely. So we've seen evidence of cooperative hunting in great white sharks. Um, they will work together. Um, and so we have seen that. And again, showing us an intelligence um, of, of a dog. Um, uh, so it's incredible. And again, really the answer is we just don't know so much. There's so much that we still don't understand about these animals. But it's cool because cameras, one of the techniques that I use oftentimes when I go out is a baited underwater remote camera. So we drop cameras with bait, and we learned so much just watching video um, of animals and their interactions together. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been kind of transformative to have inexpensive cameras that you can deploy um, all over. So, you know, really, when I uh, dive with sharks, the only shark that I'm concerned about are great whites. And we dive in cages um, by choice, not only to protect ourselves, and this is going to sound really kooky, but to protect the sharks. Because if there were to be an incident, um, it's not me that's going to be said, you know, was a, was a cuckoo nut. It's going to be that the shark is a monster and that, you know, that shark killed that person or attacked that, you know, fabulous marine biologist um, who was out there trying to save the day. You know, it's, it's bad news for the shark no matter how it plays out. And so I feel most comfortable working in cages with great white sharks. Every other species, bull sharks, tiger sharks, you name it, I've been with them. I can read them. I'm not trying to brag or say I have some extra terrestrial, you know, communication skills. But you can read animals when you work with them long enough and you can know when you've pushed a barrier and when an animal is telling you I'm not happy and you need to back off. But I don't feel that for the most part with 
oh, the over 500 different shark species that are out there, I have a better chance of getting bitten by a person on the New York subway than I do by a shark. So that's my answer. So I would say embrace it, go swimming, enjoy it. Your chance of getting uh, a, a shark bite are just so rare, so rare. Yeah. Yeah, so the question is, do sharks have sonar like bats? And the answer is no, um, they don't. But what they do have is that uh, sense that I mentioned earlier, and that's the electro sense. It's a sense that's an ancient sense that we no longer have, but it's an, a sense that's close range. If you look at the undersnout of a shark, you'll see all these peppery dots, and that's the ampullae of Lorenzini. And that is a jelly-filled canal that goes into the head of the animal, and it allows them to literally feel life. Um, every living thing underwater gives off a weak electric field and sharks have evolved to detect it. It's a very close range sense, but if something is under the sand, sharks are not, they, they won't be deterred. They can, they can feel it. They can feel that animal. And this is a sense that's shared by the platypus. How weird is that? Um, random. Uh, but yeah, so electro uh, sensory system is really the secret communication channel of the shark. Distances for being able to acquire prey. So if that comes up on a fish, he's like feeling it here, but he's also seeing. Absolutely. And then he's probably smelling. Absolutely. So it's all those sensory modalities coming together, working in combination with each other. And what's so cool about sharks is that you know sometimes they rely very heavily on their 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 sight. Sometimes it's smell. Sometimes it's the electrosensory system. And then down their whole side, they have a lateral line. So if you've ever caught a trout, you see that line going down the trout. Same in sharks. They feel vibrations and they feel movement as they're swimming. So they're just constantly bringing in all this information, processing it, and making decisions on, you know, do I go after this? Where do I go? And as to color vision, we still are kind of in the dark. Um, we know that some sharks have the requisite cones, so you have to have three cones in order to process color as we understand it. Some sharks do, some sharks don't, some rays do, some don't. So a mixed bag um, is what we're finding. And again, if you live in a virtual blue environment all day long, having color vision isn't probably the most important thing anyway. So it's kind of interesting to think about some of those things. Did someone donate their arm no. So you would think they did, um, but it was just, uh, you know, an, an accident. It was probably staged, but uh, the goblin shark bumped into that diver's arm, and then he got his tooth caught in the wetsuit, and that's why he was like, ah, trying to get back out. Um, but what a great display of the amazing pop-out jaw. You know, when I show that to kids in schools, they all scream. They can't believe it. it was just, And then the teacher's like, calm down, calm down, calm down.
Yeah, you know, there's really um, a big uh, understanding that's happening now, um, and, and it's been in Congress. I was just testifying in Congress about right whales and acoustic noise. They're doing sonar testing. Um, Navy's doing testing. They're also doing testing to look at uh, whether or not an area is good for seismic drilling for oil. So there's offshore oil exploration, and they use um, seismic testing. And it's loud, um, and it is disruptive. Um, as to sharks, it's definitely disruptive. But one of the other I- interesting things that is disruptive to sharks is the power generation lines. Um, so as we have lines crisscrossing the ocean, um, I've been taken in as an expert to look at the different teeth that are embedded into the plastic coating of those transmission lines because the sharks go down and bite them. Why? Because they're giving off that electric signal that the sharks are attracted to thinking it's prey. So weird. So totally unex- unintended consequences. Um, yeah. So the question is, you know, if a great white shark, a big predator, was injured, would that uh, perhaps make that animal more susceptible to attacking people? And the answer is, I don't. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I think when sharks are injured in the in the wild, um, they usually uh, uh, die. Uh, sharks are very hardy animals, so I've seen videos of sharks. Um, I wish I had a picture of it uh, here tonight. But when sharks mate, they don't have hands. I keep saying that they don't have hands, but they don't have hands. So when they mate, males will bite onto the side of the females, and they will take large chunks out of the side of the females. And females' skin is much thicker than the males to accommodate for the tooth depth of the males. So sharks are pretty hardy. Um, they can get beat up pretty good, and they can survive. Um, but as to whether or not uh, they would be more susceptible to attack people. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think sharks, we didn't evolve together in the water, so I don't really feel like humans are on the menu per se. I think that you know most of the three attacks that are fatal a year occur from great white sharks, and it's mainly because they're ambush predators, meaning that they ambush from below. Um, their favorite food are seals and sea lions, which look very similar to people um, when they're on the surface on, on surfboards or swimming. And the mode of operandi is sharks will come in and take one big bite, and then they swim away because they don't want to be attacked by you know claws of a seal or sea lion, and they'll let them bleed out. And so a big bite in a person can typically be a fatal bite, unfortunately. Sorry, I hope that answers your question yeah. a little bit. Yes? Yeah, so the question is, um, having binocular vision and frontally facing eyes um, as, a, as an apex predator, could that in turn be um, a negative for the great white shark as they do have other predators? And you're absolutely right. So great white sharks can be attacked by orca. Um, orca love to kill great white sharks because inside of a great white shark are large liver lobes that are full of liver oil, and they're very uh, highly nutritious, and they're, they have a lot of fat, which is energy. And so uh, orcas have been known to kill ram 
uh, invert and drown uh, basically great white sharks in the water. And you might say, how do they drown? Um, great white sharks are one of those species that have to continually swim in order to survive. And if they're flipped over into what's called tonic immobility, they can't swim. And orca know this. Orcas are incredibly smart. Um, and so they've taken out great white sharks in that way. Very easy to do. Yes, so the question is, do big great white sharks eat whales? And the answer is absolutely, they do. Um, They'll go to whale kills. So if there's a dead whale that's floating on the surface, um, they will absolutely go. And you will see multiple great white sharks working on a whale carcass. And in fact, I mentioned that that deep blue has been seen in Hawaii this summer, and it was because there was a whale carcass there. And deep blue was one of the many great white sharks feeding um, at that carcass. And it was a bit of a circus. There were a lot of people that were swimming around deep blue taking GoPro videos going, oh my God. And uh, the fishery uh, service had to come out and say, people, please get back in the boats. This is a wild animal who's eating. And this animal is about 22 feet long. So please get back in the boat. It was a little crazy. Oh, one more question? Sure. Oh, live whales. You know, they, they definitely probably could take a calf, a, a small whale, but I don't think that, that great white sharks target specifically large whales. Maybe if they were injured um, and they were dying, they might uh, try to take on an animal like that. But great white sharks are kind of lazy. They like to get um, pretty easy, consistent food, and that really is that ambush bite, and, and that's really uh, kind of their target. And it's interesting, too, because if I had a great white shark jaw... Um, fascinating is, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, sharks' teeth are modified scales, so we have these rows and rows and rows of teeth, and as a great white shark goes from a juvenile eating basically fish as its primary diet, its teeth are very sharp and pointy and dagger-like, and then as they grow into adulthood, their tooth morphology changes, and they become more triangular and serrated so that they can process the fat in these large seals and sea lions. So it's fascinating to know that just over a lifetime, it's like baby teeth and then grown-up teeth, even in the sharks, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, you know, as you go into a community that might be using sharks as their sustenance and their livelihood, how does that get transitioned out? And the answer is it takes a whole lot of time, and it usually doesn't come from people like me going into Costa Rica who are not from Costa Rica. I work with the local people who are able to work with local fishermen, and they gain the trust of local fishermen. But the fishermen know everything. They are working um, with these animals day in and day out, and it is their livelihood. But if they can be convinced to see the reality that having some of these animals protected and alive um, will actually bring back the ecosystem and they'll get more fish. Um, that's one of the, one of the benefits. Um, we had uh, in Gulf Adelse, they started to do um, penning and fish farming and corals, and they started to see rebounds and fish uh, numbers coming back like they hadn't seen before. But it takes time, it takes trust, and it's, it usually is a local uh, person that really brings that, having outsiders trying to come in and tell that it's not, a, it's not an easy thing to do. That's a great question.
So you work with an ocean science, you run an ocean sciences organization here in landlocked Colorado. Are there any challenges associated with that in terms of engaging the local public uh, where they can't go to an ocean or may not have a connection to the ocean or finding research students that are interested in this subject? Yeah. Um, so the question is why, you know, why uh, ocean research in Colorado and is that a, you know, do you find that to be a challenge? And we do um, in that most people are kind of like, why would you do that here? It doesn't make any sense to me. And, and I think then it becomes an opportunity to talk about how, you know, two out of every three breaths you take comes from little plants in the ocean and uh, that it's bigger than the rainforest. And so to try to make connections with watersheds, you know, we are at the headwaters of two ocean basins here in Colorado. So we're uniquely positioned um, that what we do here can matter. 80% of plastic pollution comes from inland that goes into the ocean, and we all know we have a huge plastic pollution problem. So I think we use our weird positioning to, to really kind of flip it on its head and say, you know what, what can we do um, here from Colorado? How can we get engaged? And yes, we do like to go to the ocean and do research trips, but we're also starting to do local uh, projects here in Colorado to engage students um, all year long because it's important. And I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, having kids connecting to nature and having an empathy and an understanding of uh, what's happening out there I think is so vital to creating you know, a next generation of students who get it and who are going to be the warriors for, for, the, for the environment. And I think more than ever, you know, I think we can look around and see that we need that. We really need it. Is it just a human perspective or um, are they kind of smiling a lot? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so. I mean, I, they look kind of, they, they are smiley. And and I think when you spend more time with them, you can start to kind of anthropomorphize, uh, anthropomorphize them, and they, get, they have personalities. And I know that sounds so crazy, but, but yeah, when you swim with them, there's some that are shy, some that are aggressive, some that don't care, some that flee the scene, um, some that are super curious and will follow you the whole dive, and you have a relationship with them. You know, it's weird. Um, but yeah, they, I think they, you know, we, t- we tend to project things, but um, yeah, I think they're pretty amazing. So in Guadalupe, um, as an example, the uh, great white sharks in Guadalupe have been cataloged over 10 years, and there's an organization that basically they take a photo on one side and a photo on the other side, and then there are markings um, all over the body, like right in here, right in here, right around the dorsal fin, and then right in here, um, that don't change over time. And so those are basically little fingerprints, and they've got little boxes on those areas, and they can identify individuals, and they give them names and all these different things. But that's a way for them to be able to identify individuals and see patterns year to year. So-and-so came back, so-and-so's here, so-and-so's pregnant, so-and-so. So it's kind of a neat way to really start to understand the dynamics of the population. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's probably not sneaking up on the plankton, but one of the, th- the theories that um, has been put forward with that uh, through whale shark researchers is that they spend so much time at the surface of the water, uh, white is reflective, and so it's really a way to keep them from getting sunburned. And if you don't believe sharks can get sunburned, it's really true. Um, my advisor did a study on hammerhead sharks in Hawaii in a, in a shallow pen. After being held for a certain amount of time, they got sunburned. So having these white spots, it's believed that it breaks up their pattern, but also perhaps helps them uh, keep from getting sunburned because they do spend so much time at the surface of the water filtering water all day long. And that's pretty brutal. Water and sun, you've gone snorkeling, you know, you get a sunburn pretty quick. Yeah. So the question is, what's the lifespan of the shark? And the answer is it depends. Um, again, we have ones that could live upwards of 400 years, like that Greenland shark. And then we have bonnet head sharks that might live um, 7, 9, 10, 12 years. Um, it really kind of is all over the map. Okay, we're going to close. All right, thank you. You guys can close. Thank you. Oh, that's so Appreciate sweet. Thank it. you. Oh, thank you. Oh, we got his T-shirts and beer. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming, and thanks to all of you. And I hope next month we'll see you over at the Buffalo Rose. It's a really beautiful place, and if you haven't seen it yet, it's a good opportunity because doors are free. So we'll see you next month. <laughs>